Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. following book reviews are from the February 2000 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction. The Lives of Great Men and Women by Jim Tresner, 33rd Degree. Both books reviewed this month, one hot off the press, the other more than 50 years old, make inspirational reading. A Summer for a Lifetime, The Life and Times of George I. Purdy as Told to Thomas Caldwell by George Purdy. Brother Purdy has had a most remarkable life, Born in 1907, he had two careers in the Navy and was a key player in the reconstruction and economic recovery of Japan after World War II. His contributions were so significant that in 1985, the Emperor of Japan bestowed a medal on him. But the delight of this book is not just the sweep of history, although that is certainly there, and not just the insight into many of the important events of the last half of the 20th century, although that is there as well. The delight is in the simplicity of the narration and the book's direct, easy style. For instance, there is a wonderful story about the youthful Purdy and his friends meeting a young man in his early 20s sitting on a beach, looking out to sea. They started a conversation and became friends. Purdy discovered that the young man was waiting while a local company built an airplane for him. The plane, later known as the Spirit of St. Louis. Some of the men Purdy worked with have written comments on this book. Walter Mondale, former Vice President of the United States and former Ambassador to Japan, says, One of the joys of my time in Tokyo was getting to know and work with George Purdy. Shintaro Ishihara, Governor of Tokyo, writes, George and I are both men of the sea. I've known him since we worked together on the 1964 Olympics. He is all hard work, good humor, and most of all guts. There are others who praise the book and the man, including Grand Commander Kleinnicht, but you get the point. Sometimes we are privileged to share in the lives of the men who make a difference on our world scene. Our Scottish Rite brother, illustrious George Purdy, 33rd degree, is such a man. As with Brother Purdy's book, the internet is also a good place to find Edith Dean's book, All of the Women of the Bible. I checked when writing this column and found a special on the hardback price, which is actually lower than the paperbound cost. Harper and Rowe first copyrighted the book in 1955, so it is hardly a new work, but it is very complete. Of special interest to members of the Eastern Star, it is a handy reference for anyone trying to understand a bit more about the biblical context from which so much background of the Masonic Orders is taken. Also, it reads far more like a novel than a reference book. If, like some of us, you tend to confuse Sarah, Salome, and Sapphira, this book will help. The following book reviews are from the August 2003 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry and written by Jim Tresner, 33rd Degree Grand Cross. Symbols and Images We have three great books this month, a novel, a work on symbolism, and a biography. They are each a joy to read and there is something for almost any taste. Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code Most of the books I recommend don't make the bestseller list, but this is an exception. 
The Da Vinci Code is a mystery story that should appeal to most Masons. The hero is a famous expert on symbols and symbolism, and he has to use the interpretation of symbols to solve a murder which leads to a far larger mystery. It's all here in a fascinating mixture. The Grail Quest, the Templars, Roslyn Chapel, and iconography. The book compels your interest from the first paragraph and does not let you go until the last. A famed museum director as well as an expert in symbolism and the guardian of an age-old secret is fatally shot. With his last moments of life, not wanting the secret to die with him, he draws a pentagram on his chest in his own blood and arranges his dying body to represent da Vinci's famous drawing of Vitruvian Man. The assassin is a member of a fundamentalist cult. Mystery, Templarism, conspiracy, intrigue, and a healthy dose of knowledge about symbols. It's all in this gripping book. If you start reading it in the evening as I did, make an extra pot of coffee. You'll be up late. The next book is Masonic Symbols and Signposts by Leon Zeldis, 33rd Degree. Illustrious Brother Zeldis, 33rd Degree, is past sovereign grand commander of the Scottish Rite Supreme Council for the State of Israel. A man of prominence in many fields and a highly noted Masonic scholar, who also recently published Land of Four Seas, a novel. In the present book, Masonic Symbols and Signposts, he provides some interesting and useful information about the symbols found in masonry. Even more, perhaps, he provides an understanding of why we use symbols at all, and where, quite literally, there is no other way in which masonry can work. As a way of sensing this book's richness, consider some of the chapter titles. Symbolism of the Stone, Symbolism of the Ladder, Color Symbolism in Freemasonry, Symbolism of Colors in the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite, The Labyrinth, King Solomon's Quarries, and much more. The book has a clear and easy style with information that will make you stop and think. You will read it again and again, first to gain an overview and later as a reference work. And the third book is A Labor of Love, The Life and Art of Vinnie Ream by Glenn Sherwood. I somehow missed this book when it came out, but it's still available. It is a large book filled with photographs, and it tells the story of a most interesting young woman. Vinnie Ream was a strikingly beautiful girl with an astonishing range of talents. She was working in the dead letter office in Washington, D.C., when at the age of 15, she went with a friend to visit a famous sculptor. Holding a piece of clay for the first time in her life, she molded an Indian head with such talent that the sculptor took her on the spot as a student. Before two years had passed, Vinnie had sculpted almost every important person in Washington during the height of the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln gave her sittings for each day for months. When Lincoln was assassinated and Congress decided to have a statue made to honor him, Vinnie, still a teenager, won the commission. She was the first woman, and is still the youngest person ever, to receive a commission for a work of art from the federal government. Her life-size standing statue of Lincoln is still in the Capitol Statuary Hall. She also painted, composed, and published music, played the harp, and wrote poetry. She was living at home with her parents, who took in boarders. One of those boarders was Lillian Pike, the daughter of Albert Pike. Vinnie wanted to meet the great man, and Lillian introduced him. An instant friendship formed. At Vinnie's request, Pike wrote a series of essays, and Vinnie would come at least one evening a week when she and Lillian would sit by the fire and listen to Pike read the essay aloud. Pike's unpublished essays to Vinnie contain some of his best writing, and they range over such topics as life and lawyers in early Arkansas, Pike's adventures as a young man, the importance of books, the wrongs committed against Native Americans, and much more. Returning his friendship, Vinnie played and sang for Pike, wrote poetry to him, and sculpted a bust of Pike, which is one of the best ever done. 
Vinnie was at the center of such controversies as the attempt to remove President Johnson after the death of Lincoln, Senator Ross, who cast the deciding vote against Ouster, was also a boarder in the Ream home. If you're a Civil War buff, or have an interest in the political life in the nation's capital following the war, or simply want to read a remarkable woman, this book is for you. This last round of book reviews is actually pretty timely. It's from the November-December 2016 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction. It's titled Holiday Treats and is written by James T. Tresner, the second 33rd degree Grand Cross. It hardly seems possible that another year has rolled into history. The festive decorations appear, goodwill is in the air, at least I seem less grumpy than usual, and it's time to treat ourselves a little. The books here would make good gifts for your favorite mason or for your lodge library. And this is a good reason to take a little time to read. As is my custom, I want to start with the best bargain in all Masonic books. Gift yourself with a membership to the Scottish Rite Research Society. With membership, not only do you receive Herodom, the outstanding collection of current Masonic research, and the quarterly member newsletter, The Plumb Line, but bonus books as well. Compared to the value received, the annual membership fee of $55 is a pittance indeed. To join, simply visit scottishrightstore.org, and in the left-hand column under Masonic Education, click Scottish Rite Research Society, and then select the type of membership you would like, annual or life. Now, I'll take a brief pause and state that I haven't verified that that information is still correct. Remember, this article is from 2016. And back to the article. Also, for gifts for your brethren on your list, visit the Supreme Council website, scottishrite.org, and click Store at the top of the page. You will find clothing with Masonic emblems, especially shirts and ball caps, along with many other items. Browse around, it's worth it. The books in this issue cover a wide range of topics, and the first one is one of the most important books to come out in a long time. The Bull's Apron, The Aesthetic Theory of Masonic Art and Material Culture, by Peter Paul Fuchs. This is a wonderful book, but it is not the easiest book to read. The reason centers on the very nature of the topic. Many of us have noticed, as the author points out, that when a truly great artist makes use of Masonic tropes, images, ideas, metaphors, symbols, etc., some really sublime art results. Brother Fuchs references Brother Mozart as an example. The same can be said of Brothers Sibelius, Chagall, and J.S. Bach, among many others. But, at the same time, the arts produced for use in the lodge room were generally rather run-of-the-mill. T'was puzzlement, but Brother Fuchs suggests it could be understood in the nature of the gentleman mason in the early years. It was the fashion at the time for gentlemen to laud and practice the virtues of the country gentleman. This included a rustic simplicity, even if the gentlemen were highly educated. Sometimes, substandard grammar was deliberately used. A less refined taste was preferred. As Fuchs points out, even the king participated in this country rustic behavior pattern. Perhaps the best example of the rustic sophisticated style is the first known Masonic opera, written by Brother W.R. Chetwood in 1731, The Generous Freemason, or The Constant Lady, with the humors of Squire Noodle and his Man Doodle, a tragicom farcical ballad opera in three acts with the music prefixed to each song. It alternates between scenes which might charitably be described as rustic simplicity, or slapstick and nearly bawdy, might be more accurate, to scenes in the high style, including an area and chorus in praise of England and masonry sung by Neptune. 
It includes a parody of a Masonic initiation as well as songs honoring virtue. As Brother Fuchs remarks, it is not always easy to tell when a theme or idea is Masonic in origin. There is much less of a problem when one is talking about religious symbolism or ideas. Religions come with dogma, and it is usually easy to identify a reference to a dogma in a work of art. But Freemasonry deals less in dogmas than in ideas, and many of its tropes are not far removed from those of ordinary life. It is more often in their cumulative effect than in individual instance that they are most noticeable. The book deals with complex ideas, and does so very well. The illustrations are numerous and well-chosen, and the printing and layout of the book are first-class. It is not, as I said, an easy read, but it is ultimately a most rewarding one. Incidentally, the author has an excellent program on YouTube which discusses the major ideas of the book. You can find it by googling The Bull's Apron. The next book is The Craft Driven Lodge by Daniel D. Hrinko. Brother Hrinko raises an interesting question. How does a lodge come to reflect the interests of its members? It certainly is not built into the structure of a lodge meeting in most jurisdictions. While there are variations, elections for lodge officer positions are generally held without nomination. The brethren simply write down the name of the brother they wish to hold an office, and the votes are tallied. In many states, a brother cannot let others know he would like to hold an office, although he can refuse the office if elected. Moreover, the worshipful master is very nearly a benign dictator. It is customary to speak of it being his year in his lodge. Generally, he can decide whether to allow a motion to come before the lodge for a vote. He controls deliberation, who is allowed to speak, and the agenda. And it is a common observation that the lodge tends to take on the personality of the worshipful master. This book is sort of a chronicle of Arts and Sciences Lodge number 792 in Columbus, Ohio. A group of Masons wanted to charter a new lodge, and wisely spent considerable time talking and thinking about the kind of lodge that they wanted. They decided they wanted a lodge which encouraged member participation and interaction. They wanted real Masonic education to be a defining characteristic of the lodge. They wanted a lodge which could adapt to the changing realities of the world without losing its Masonic identity. There was more, but they, when they had agreed to the nature of the lodge they wanted to create, they petitioned for and were granted a charter. As a side note, that basic question is a most important one. Lodges which find themselves in a decline would be well advised to ask, what kind of lodge do we want to have, and then work toward it? And how does the lodge adapt to time and change? Brother Hrinko answers it this way. Arts and Sciences is a craft-driven lodge. By definition, this means that the will of the craft, communicated to the master and lodge management, ultimately directs the activities of the lodge. As a result, the nature of Arts and Sciences Lodge will evolve over time as the membership evolves. As new brothers join, they will bring ideas, desires, and needs into the Lodge, which the Lodge will then need to accommodate. As brothers move on due to death, geography, or other reasons, certain desires, ideas, and needs will leave the pool of active members, making some activities less important, if not unnecessary. This results in an organization that is constantly evolving. For this lodge to succeed across time, there needs to be a constant flow of information from the members of the lodge to the management, and from the management to the brothers of the lodge. Should brothers feel that they are not being heard and have no sense of input into the activities of the lodge, they will become disconnected, apathetic, and eventually disappear. However, if a formal mechanism is created where every brother has a voice if they are willing to use it, and feels confident that their opinions matter, then they will be connected, energetic, and invested in the life of the lodge being willing to take whatever actions are reasonable to contribute to its success. 
It does not take much time to read this little book, but there is food for many hours of thought and conversation here. When I joined the craft, there was no thought of the lodge meeting your needs. Your task was to accommodate the lodge. For many of us, that was fine, but far too many brethren, not finding what they sought in lodge, simply stopped attending. Think about the suggestions in this text, and then set out to make the lodge experience all it can be for everyone. It can be great. And the final one is Brought to Light, Contemporary Freemasonry, Meaning, and Society by J. Scott Kenney, Ph.D. Brother Kenny is an associate professor of sociology at Memorial University at St. John's, Newfoundland. This is an intriguing book, written by a scholar, but entirely accessible to the layman. Let me give you some of the chapter designations. Sometimes, as in this case, they provide a good overview of the contents. 1. Contemporary Freemasonry, a neglected field. 2. Paths to Masonry. 3. Predisposing Factors. 4. The Social Interplay Between Secrecy and Curiosity. 5. Organized or Organizing Encounters. 6. Attractive or Attracting Aspects of the Craft. 7. Unattractive Factors or Hurdles to Get Over. 8. Overcoming the Hurdles. 9. Taking the Degrees. 10. Social Atmosphere and Member Involvement. 11. Organizational Factors and Member Involvement. 12. Further Factors in Member Involvement and an Overall Explanatory Framework. 13. Claimed Life Changes Since Becoming a Freemason and 14, Contemporary Freemasonry, The Direction Forward. The chapter titled, Claimed Life Changes Since Becoming a Freemason, is especially enlightening. Many Masonic writers have said that Freemasonry is a transformative experience, that it produces real changes and development within men. Brother Kenny uses the tools of sociology to gather these experiences among Masons. Not surprisingly, the title rings true. And then a quote from the book. How do you take yourself out of this fragmented social world? There is a sort of isolation, whether it's a spiritual, I don't mean that you cut yourselves off from other people, but that it gives you this sort of space. It all sounds very insular, that you have sort of a walled area where you can regenerate. And I don't think that's a bad thing. For a lot of Masons, it's actually a driving force. I grew up without a father, and I was looking to the Masons as maybe some sort of supportive family type thing that was missing before. Yes, I think I was. Once you're a Mason, you can go pretty well anywhere in the world, find another Mason, and they're sort of obligated, if you're in need, to help you. Just to have that family unit all over the world, as well, is a big benefit, I think. It's definitely an attraction for me. Freemasonry taps into the spiritual hunger today that research shows exist, despite decline in mainline denominations. It's the opposite of our disposable society. Men are searching for something without knowing what that is. The Masonic tradition continues to intrigue men because there's a lack in our society, especially presently, of a stable institution. The church no longer has that kind of power. There isn't really anyone addressing some of the larger spiritual questions that everyone considers, especially younger people. When you get to a certain age, you start to ask some of the bigger questions and want to explore larger ideas, and Masonry has the potential to present a clear path, and I think that it is not any type of stricture. This is a very thought-provoking book which gives a harder edge and focus to the things that many of us have thought and felt for decades. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.